Well, it's my great pleasure and privilege to greet you in the name of Jesus this morning. I'm really blessed and happy to be here. Um, here earlier this year, my, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel to Guatemala with some of your children. And I just want you to know what a, what a blessing that was for us. Um, you know, they told us, they, they called us up and asked us if we wanted to go. And I said, well, where are we going to go? Well, we don't know. Okay, um, when are we going to go? Well, we don't know that yet either. Well, what are we going to do with the youth when we get there? Well, we don't know. Uh, yeah, sure, we'll go. <laughs> In the end, my wife said, well, you know, our children are going. The children are going, so we should. Certainly, we can be brave enough to go. And, and it was a real blessing to us to, to be there with them. They were just all a blessing to, to us. I'm sure they all told you, you know, never send another minister along as the, you know, they got a couple of sermons, but it wasn't too, too awful bad. And uh, yeah, I told them, you know, we've got, what, 19, 18, 17, 18-year-olds and two 60-year-olds. Y'all hey, do the math. Is this a good idea? <laughs> but it worked out just fine. They took real good care of us down there. So I want to talk this morning about what do you want to see? So we went down to Guatemala, and what, what do we want to see there? What were we looking for? We, we were hoping to find lost souls and let them see Jesus, right? What do we want to see? Turn over to Job 31. I promise I won't stay in Job too long. In fact, we're only going to read one verse. As Job 31, 1. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Now, in the New American Standard, it has that. I made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And the NIV says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. So what do we want to see? On more than one occasion now, I've, had, I've been asked by a young man, how do I not look? You know, I go out into the world, I go to the store, I go drive down the road, and I'm surrounded by all these people who are dressed or not dressed in ways to make me look. And, and I don't want to look. I want to be, I want to keep myself pure. Well, how, how do I not look? And like I said, I, I've had several young men ask me that. And, and I should really be encouraged that he's thinking that way. You know, that it concerns him, the things that he sees that are being taken into his mind and, and the thoughts that he has. And, you know, and I should be happy to. I imagine our young ladies think that way too, but they don't come and ask me about it. So maybe they ask my wife or one of the other administrative wives, but they don't ask me. But the young men will, will ask. And... You know, he knew. He didn't want to look. There's, there's good teaching there. You know, it's, it's holding up. It's, all the world is pressing in. But everywhere his eye turned, it seemed like there were people who wanted him to look. They were trying to, to make him look. What really wasn't encouraging was, you know, I didn't have a good answer for him. I, I was kind of caught by surprise. And in fact, all my answers, they were kind of lame. It was like, well, practical answer. Well, look down. You know, look at your feet. Uh, there's one family who does uh, videos on YouTube, and the mother will say Nike when they see a woman who's inappropriately dressed. So all the boys will look at their feet, right, their <laughs> shoes. So that can work. Look in their eyes, right? Look at their eyes. Go the other way, right? You're in Walmart. We'll just turn around and go the other way. But then you go down the next aisle, and she's on the next aisle, right? And you turn around and go the other way, and there, there's somebody else. In fact, my wife and I, we were shopping in Walmart. It was like midnight. And we were there to get a couple of things. And it's usually nice because the store's, you know, kind of empty. When we had the, the children were little, it'd be nice to go at that time because they'd all be asleep. You just put them all in the cart and then you can go around and take another cart and get your stuff. <laughs> and we walked down and there was this person going the other way and, or going along the same way and, and his pants were falling off. And so we, we well, let's turn around and go the other way. And then here comes this lady and... I can't even describe what she was wearing. And so we just kind of stopped. 
you know, and then she went by and the other one went away. And there was this older black gentleman who was standing on the other side of the aisle from us. And I, I think he was a retired military man. And he just looks and he says, yeah, one of them's got her pants falling off and the other one's got this. What are you going to do? <laughs> and, you know, he, he saw our predicament, you know, and he shared it. So there are other people out there, they're feeling the same way about the things that they see or don't see. What do you do? Am I going to leave the store? I didn't get my stuff. I need coffee. Right? <laughs> you know, some, some, there has to be some way to, to get through this. Well, so I prayed with the young man. At least, you know, that was the one good answer I had, right, was that we prayed. You know, we had conference and youth conference here a little while ago. And we, we had really good teaching on, on needful topics. You know, we had separated living in an electronic age. That, that goes to this, right? Using leisure time wisely. You know, why are we places where we're seeing these things? And, you know, the first message for the youth was titled Connected. Now, there wasn't a question mark there. It just said connected. But we should be asking ourselves, you know, what is it that we're connected to? Connected to what or to who are we connected? And, you know, last conference we spent a lot of time talking about the Internet. And before that we had a, a special session about social media, right, and Facebook and all that stuff. You know, well, when you open up your browser or your phone and you go and you look at Facebook or, or you go surfing for something to look at, what is it you want to see? What, what are you looking for? What, what do you want to see? And when your Facebook feed comes up and it's full of ads and all these questionable pictures that you really didn't need to see and political jokes, disrespecting the government and, and jokes you would never repeat, how do you not look? It's right there. You're just trying to see what Joe did last week, right? What pictures did he put up? And you got all this, all this junk. How do you not look? I have a friend, he's really on Facebook all the time, and he's decided you know, he's going to purify Facebook with cat videos. Every time he gets a political post or a bad joke, he puts up two or three cat pictures, you know, or a couple of funny cat videos. And I told him, you know, Tommy, I don't think you're going to you know, save the world with cat videos. But, you know, he said, hey, you know, it can't hurt. <laughs> so that's, that's his mission right now. So we're getting plenty of good teaching on all these things, aren't we? And we really don't have too much of an excuse or, you know, we shouldn't be worried about it. And in fact, we almost have to ask, you know, can we preach something to death? You know, are, are we putting ideas in people's minds by, by talking about it so much? Now, I asked my, my boys, you know, hey, are we going go to gonna come, come to conference? They're like, well, I don't know. Are we talking about social media again? So they came. But they don't use Facebook. So I'm blessed with that. So they're good, right? They're, they're all set. No Facebook. You know, and, and the rest of us, well, we're like Job, right? We made a covenant with our eyes. We're just not going to look. So we're fine. We got, we got no problem. Right? So, so do we have a good answer for that young man? We obviously know how not to look. Can we tell him? Well, how do I not look then? And part of our problem when we struggle with these things is that all of our answers are, are negative. Right? You know, I'm trying to lose weight. It's, you can tell I'm not trying very hard. But it's like there's this pile of things that I'm not supposed to eat. It's like everything. Everything I like, I'm not supposed to eat. Okay? So then, then I'll lose weight, right? Because I'll starve. <laughs> well, that's my theory. <laughs> so if I don't eat those things, well, yeah, then I'll lose weight. Fine, don't do that. Don't eat them. But, but the house is full of that stuff, right? I have three young people in the house. So I don't have that stuff in the house. It's going to be bad. They don't need to lose weight. So why should they suffer along with dad? So I'm hungry. I want a snack. Well, I go and I get a piece of candy or I get a, you know, whatever it is I'm not supposed to eat, that's what's there, and yeah, I'm, I'm snarfing that down. All right, guess what? I'm not losing weight. <laughs> well, what I really need to do is instead of thinking about the things I'm not supposed to eat, I want to think about the things that I should eat, right? I want to be thinking, you know, boy, that piece of celery, that would just be great right now. Yeah, okay, it's, maybe that's not the right answer. <laughs> But I need to know what it is I'm going to replace that thing with. And that's what I need to be focusing on. Not focusing on what I, what I don't want to do. I want to focus on the positive. So when I'm hungry, I reach for 
the positive thing. And yeah, yeah, that's hard. But still, see, the answer comes back around to that same question. Well, then what do I want to see? And the answer really isn't practical, is it? It's spiritual. What do I want to see? Psalm 17, 15 says, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness, seeing God's face. Psalm 105, 4 says, Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. Revelation 22, 3 through 5 says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. John 14, 7, Jesus says, If ye had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. So really there's only one thing that we should be wanting, desiring to see, and seeking to see, and that's God. We want to see God. We want the eternal life that Jesus has promised us. So what we really want to do is we want to see the face of God. Well, how do we do that? How do we see God? Is he, do we see him? He's supposed to be here, right? Two or three of us are gathered here. Do we see him? Well, Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we need to be pure in heart. That's the reason we make that covenant with our eyes. I'm not going to look at things that make me lustful. I'm going to turn my gaze away so I can be pure in heart and be with God. So pure, purity, what does that mean? What's required? Can I really be pure? And there was one writer, he said, there's no man who can say he has never looked on a woman in lust. Is that true? Well, Jesus tells us that we're to be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, perfect, completed, pure, holy. Now, does Jesus ask us to do anything that he's not going to help us to do? No. No, he does not. You can go all through the scripture. He doesn't ask you to do anything and then not help you to do it. So we only need to understand what it means to be perfect. What's holy? How pure is pure? How holy is holy? I turn over to 2 Corinthians 6. And we'll start down to verse uh, 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And over into chapter 7, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now in the NIV, and this is the only time you'll ever hear me quote the NIV twice in a sermon, okay? But in the NIV, they have that as, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So why do we want to be holy? Because we reverence God. We respect him. We prize and cherish our relationship with him. We love him. So we're willing to put away anything and replace it with whatever he asks 
in order to be with him. Now, we all understand that, right? You know, we're used to giving something up for things that we love. I mean, most of us enjoy being in a nice warm house in the winter, right? But, you know, a whole lot of us here have spent some pretty miserable hours sitting in a tree in the cold hoping to put something in the freezer. We're, we're used to giving stuff. And then we go tell stories about it, right? How great it was sitting out there freezing all day and nothing ever walked by, right? We go and tell, do we do that? Do we tell stories about the, time, the things we gave up for God and how wonderful it was? We should. And God isn't asking us to be miserable. Holiness is all to our good. And turn over to 1 Peter. And chapter 1. And 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. So what's the wherefore? What's the wherefore therefore, as we like to say? It's because we've received all the grace and salvation that the prophets could only preach about, right? The prophets told people what they were going to get. We have it. We have Christ. We have salvation. So we can go forth to holiness in gratitude of what we've already been given. Leviticus 20, 26 says, And ye shall be holy unto me, for I the Lord am holy, and have severed you from other people, that you should be mine. So God's holy. That means there's no evil in him. And we're to be holy too. But what does that mean? That means God has taken us and set us apart for his special use. His special use. So it's like, you know, before the hunt, you go through and you check all your arrows. And you take this one, right? And this is going to be the one. This is going to be the one that I, I'm going to take the shot with. You put that in the first part of your quiver. Make sure that's the one you pull out once you get into the tree. Or if you're brave enough to stalk, maybe you'll carry it around. I'm going to set this one apart. And this one, that's you. Okay? God has taken you and set you apart. He has a purpose for you. He has something that he wants you to do that he's going to use you for. Not anybody else. You. That is what it means to be holy. So we belong to God. So in all things, we want to obey him and seek to please him. Now, the arrow doesn't know. You know, it can't try to hit the target, but you can. And, that, and that's what we're to be. That's what it means to be holy. That's what's required to be his. Well, so how holy is that? Can I be too holy? Is there such a thing as, what do they say, too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good? Does that really happen? No, actually, it doesn't. Or how about, well, you're being holier than thou. Okay, people in my family who aren't church, they like to say that. You're holier than thou. Oh, okay, well, exactly how holy would I have to be to be holier than thou? Yeah, very holy. Real holy. But to serve God, I need to be very holy. Holy is a, it's a single thing, right? There's not a degree of holy. We either are or we aren't. You know, did Jesus say, don't be too holy that you challenge anybody? Well, no, that's not what he said, right? We just read it. He said we're to be perfect. So can we be too set apart for God to use us? How holy is holy? Well, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. 
For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, but not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So was the answer I should have given that young man, hey, pluck your eyes out. It's all done. It's all taken care of. Do you have a problem with your hands? Cut your hands off. Hey, you know, that's, you know, a lot of people say that's really not very good. Um, it's not very effective. And it's true, right? You could take your eyes out, and you still have the memory, the vision of everything that you've seen. Right? They, they like to say, you know, what's been seen can't be unseen. And that's why it's so important what we actually look at. But it's that important. Jesus is saying, if you can't stop sinning with your eyes, you'd be better off to be blind. You don't want your eyes to carry you to hell. You don't want your hands or any of your members to carry you into hell. If you can't control them, you'd be better off without them. If we feel like it's too much to abandon, to, to abandon our lusts to be with Jesus, then we're not looking at him. We're not seeing what there is for us. In Luke 9.62, Jesus said, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, so how is it, then, we have good intentions, we have, we have good teaching, we have God's power. How is it we still have struggles in this area? You know, wouldn't it be great if it was just, we didn't have to preach about this. We got, we got it all right. Nobody has any struggles. It, it's all fine. Why, why are we still dealing with it? You know, we have the Lord. We've accepted Jesus. We have the Spirit. In fact, we're all temples of the living God. He's in here. Why should we have any difficulty with it? How do we still have eyes for unholy things? Well, Numbers 33.52 says, Then ye shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, this is before they went into the promised land, and destroy all their pictures, and destroy all their molten images, and quite pluck down all their high places, completely tear them down. Are we still holding on to high places in our lives? What are the high places? Jeremiah 32, 35 says, And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire unto Molech, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. We were saved. We came to the Lord. Didn't that tear down all the idols in our lives? Didn't we banish them, all the sin from our life? But then are we turning around, like Jeremiah is saying, and building them back up? Are we enjoying still seeking after the things that we turned away from? 1 Kings 3, 1 through 2 says, And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built under the name of the Lord until those days. So at first, the high places, before there was a temple, were the altars that Abraham and his sons had set up as they were wandering. And people would go and they would find those altars and they would worship God there. And that was a good thing. And that was acceptable until the temple was built. And then everyone was to come to the temple because God was there. In 1 Kings, at the separation of Israel from Jerusalem, and Jeroboam said in his heart, this is chapter 12, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam set up his high places to deliberately keep the people 
from going to Jerusalem to worship in the house of God. He did it on purpose to keep the people out, out of church. Do you see any parallels yes. in our society today? How about you know, Super Bowl Sunday? Well, if you, know, if you go to church, you're going to miss the pregame show, right? How about, you like, uh, do you like NASCAR? Sunday's race day, right? All the big sports events, you know, they're on the television and they're being played on Sunday. Are you in a, a league? You know, everybody wants to do their thing on Sunday. I used to be in an archery club. You know, all the shoots, if you want to go and compete, it's all on Sunday. Why? What's wrong with Saturday? It doesn't keep you out of church. People don't even know they're doing it. But Jeroboam knew. And he was even told, later, a prophet came as he was conducting worship at his altar. And the prophet cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burnt incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. If you read the rest of Kings, you find that prophecy comes true. Now, Jeroboam learned very quickly what he did displeased God. He pointed at the prophet to tell the men to take him and kill him. And as he stretched forth his hand, it withered before his eyes. But he never turned back to God. The prophet asked God to heal him, even though he was going to kill him. And his hand was healed. But he never turned back to God. He didn't kill the prophet. I guess that was good. So these weren't the altars of Abraham and Jacob anymore when we talk about the high places. These are places where the people worshipped Baal. And the way they worshipped was they went up there and sinned. Okay, that's, that's what they did. They went to these places, these high places, and they sinned there. So what happened? Why did this keep happening? You know, even the good kings, it seems like they could never root out this idolatry, the high places. And 1 Kings 15, 11 says, And Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did David his father. And he took away the Sodomites out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. And also, uh, Maacah, his mother, even her he removed from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove. And Asa destroyed her idol and burn it by the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. But the high places were not removed. In 1 Kings 22, 42, Jehoshaphat was 30 and 5 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 20 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And he walked in all the ways of Asa his father. He turned not aside from it, doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. For the people offered and burnt incense yet in the high places. And in 2 Kings 14, in the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah. And he was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign and reigned 29 years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet not like David his father, he did according to all things as Joash his father did. How be it? The high places were not taken away. As yet, the people did sacrifice and burn incense in the high places. In 2 Chronicles 25, says, Amaziah was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 20 and 9 years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart. Now, so far, we've been given no clue as to what was going on. What's with this oversight? Why aren't we tearing down these high places? It's the people, right? It's the people's fault. They just keep going back. You know, they're rebellious. That's, that'd be nice of me as a minister to say all the problems in the congregation are with the congregation, right? It's not that I'm doing anything wrong. But Chronicles calls Amaziah out. He didn't remove the high places because he didn't have a perfect heart. He was keeping his options open. Yeah, I love the Lord. But if the Lord lets me down, there's still this place... For Baal here. I can go over and say, tell Baal, you know, I didn't completely abandon you. Help me out. 
in 2 Kings 15. And he did that which right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Isaiah had done. Howbeit the high places were not removed. So can that be us? Is, is that our problem? Even though we have the Lord, we have the Spirit. We're the temple of the living God. Are we willing to be obedient, submitted for all appearances, loving Christians, and yet we're still holding back? We're still not removing some high place out of our lives. Are there worldly connections that we're not willing to part with? Or maybe we think we just can't survive without them. Well, you know, God won't mind if I keep that. I, I have to have it, right? Well, could any of these kind of high places apply to us? You know, I know movies cause a lot of problems, but I'm really careful about the things that I watch. How about, I know this business seminar, I know that they're going to promote some unchristian ideas, but I can sort out the good advice from the bad. I know, I know what's right. How about Disney movies, right? They're just good fun for the children, right? They're all rated G. They've been, you know, cleaned up. I know that a lot of popular music is immoral. But, you know, so many of the songs really connect with the way that I feel. Well, we live and do business in the world. And, you know, sometimes that means we just have to work on Sunday. We were doing, um, they were going to do a seminar on, um, what was it, the water rescue team or search team or something like that. And the government was putting it on. And so it was scheduled for Sunday. And, you know, my wife said, well, couldn't we ask them if maybe they could schedule a different day? Well, no. We couldn't do that. Well, that would just be, well, that's rude. What about all the other people? And what about, you know, I mean, they're just coming and doing it for us. Yeah, but would it hurt to ask? Would it hurt to say, you know, well, you know, that's our day of worship. Would it be possible? You know, if it's not possible, well, then maybe we can decide to go and do it. That's the ox in the ditch, and we can go and decide to do it on Sunday. You know, James Helmuth likes to say, you know, sometimes we push the ox into the ditch so that we can do what we want to do. You know, and sometimes you just need to shoot the ox and go on. <laughs> right? <laughs> so can any of these things be true? You know, we, we're the temples of God. There's no way that these high places can persist in us, right? Isn't that right? Well, let's turn over to 2 Kings, chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, after the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and reared up altars for Baal, and made a grove, as did Ahab king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son to pass through the fire and observe times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Manasseh placed altars to strange gods in the courts of the temple. And he made his graven image and put it right in the sanctuary. Put it right there. Right in the sanctuary. Now, God's first temple wasn't immune to defilement, and neither are we. So how do we overcome the high places? How do we get them out? 
how do we burn them to the ground and keep them, keep ourselves from building them back up? What do we do? Well, still in 2 Kings, go back to chapter 18. Sorry, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the king, of, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign. He reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places and brake the images and cut down the groves and brake in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did, not burn, did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. Can you be unlike any that were before you or all the kings of Judah? Can you be more holy than all the Mennonites who went before you? Hezekiah did. So you can. You can. And more than that, he rebelled against the king of Assyria. His state had been made a vassal to Assyria by the prior king. Right? They had paid off the king of Assyria to keep them from coming and invading Jerusalem. That was how they had survived. And Hezekiah said, I'm not going to do that. I told him, no, I'm, I'm not going to pay the, pay the bounty. I'm not going to give you the money. I'm not doing it. Can you do that? Can you say... No, I'm not going to watch that movie. I'm not going to go to the race on Sunday. I'm not going to look at that young lady with lust in my heart. Can you do that? Yes, you can. Because God is in the temple. And he will help you do it. Are you looking at him? He even broke down the bronze serpent that Moses had raised in the world. Remember, Jesus referred to the bronze serpent. It was an image of him on the cross. Hezekiah broke it up because the people had started worshiping it as an idol. When things in the church become idols, they have to go. Right? Now, I, I love the plain coat. I love the symbol that it is for our church. It's a symbol of separation. It's a symbol of my love for the church and my membership of this particular church. You know, when I'm out and about, if I'm wearing my plain coat, other people who are Mennonites see me, and you're my brother. And it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. But if I worship this coat, it needs to go. Okay? And that's what happened with the bronze serpent. serpent. They were burning incense to it. We don't put crosses on the wall because people worship the cross and not what it stands for. We don't have little statues all over the church to the saints. You know, we don't have a statue of Felix Mons being thrown into the river because people would worship that. Felix, that would break his heart for eternity. He wants us to see what he saw, Jesus. And that wasn't enough. Hezekiah threw off the king of Assyria, who could destroy him just for fun. In fact, that's what they did. They destroyed people for fun. But he trusted God, and God rewarded him. So where did Hezekiah find the courage to do the things that all these other kings had not? Well, Psalm 119 says, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? by living according to your word. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Deuteronomy 33:29 says, Happy art thou, Israel, who is like unto thee, 
O people saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellency? And thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. You could translate that high places as tread upon the backs of their enemies. God promises you victory if you follow his word, if you follow him. John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. God's word isn't a list of of do-nots. It's a light for our path. If we follow it, we'll be strengthened. We'll be able to resist temptations. We'll be able to, to keep our eyes on him. You know, we'll find, well, so can we have victory? It's promised to us right there, isn't it? We're going to have life and have it more abundantly. We're going to tread upon the backs of our enemies, Satan. So how, how do we have victory in these areas? How do we not look? Well, it's funny, as hard as it seems, as hard as we make it, we're actually designed to resist it. The way we see things makes us able to decide what we're going to look at. Now, I'm a computer programmer, and we're working on a new, a new system. And it's a system not for our, for our um, employees, it's for our customers. So it has to be nice, right? And so it's a rewrite of something that's already out there, and so it has to work the same way. And so we started studying about user interfaces and what do we want to do. You know, everybody's used, if you have a computer, you've used Google, right? So that's the most used user interface in the world. It's one field. Now, if you work with computers in your office, any program that your company has written, you bring up the screen and there's 75 fields. And where do I start? And so we wanted to get away from that. We wanted to get back towards that, you know, make it really simple. And so the first thing you need to try to do is you try to bring the person's focus where it needs to be. Right? So in Google, there's one field there. There's only one thing for me to see. Right? My eye goes right to it. If I have a whole page of stuff, I have name and address and phone number and social security number and this and that, and that where's the user going to start? Well, so maybe I'll start, maybe I'll make a color over there where they're supposed to start, and they can see that. You know, maybe the cursor will be there, or maybe there'll be some text over there. There's something there to attract the person's eye. Now, does that work? Well, it turns out that the way you look at things, you see, like I see, looking out over this room, it looks like I see all of you clearly, but I can only really focus on one or two of you at a time. And everyone else is just a little blurred into the background. And that's the way we look at everything. And so, really, our focus is only about that big. And everything else is kind of blurred out. So when you see something, you see it, and then you decide what part of it you're going to look at. So I can decide when I see a person in Walmart, I'm not going to look at how they're dressed. I want to look at their face. So like I said, the lame answer, look in their eyes, right? But what am I looking for? And what do I want to see? Well, I want to see God. Right? That's what we decided. Whenever we're looking for something, we're looking for God. So when I see that person, no matter how they're dressed or what they're doing or what they're up to, what I want to see in that person is God. I want to see God in that person. How do you do that? You, normally, you can't see God in a person so you have a relationship with them, right? Well, how, where do you get a relationship with a person? I saw a young lady several years ago, and it was really striking. Um, she was wearing a T-shirt, and she's a young lady who would attract your attention. And written across her chest, it said, I'm up here, and it had an arrow pointing up to her face. I went, yeah, that's, that's cute. That's nice. Of course, it's a total user interface fail, right? <laughs> Because I put the thing that draws my attention right there where I'm not supposed to be looking. <laughs> okay. But she was right. She was up here. If I want to see God in her, I'm not going to see it in her t-shirt or in the way she walks or what she's wearing. It's here. I'm going to see it in her face. Is she smiling? Is she sad? Is she happy? Is she looking? Is she engaging? Is she talking? You see God in a person's face. You interact with people through their face. Well, I'm flailing my hands around all the time, but you see people 
It's faces. And if you want to see God, that's where you need to look. In Proverbs 7, 1 through 3 says, My son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live, and my law is the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thine fingers and write them upon the tab table of thine heart. We change our gaze, we change what we're looking at because we want to be pure for the Lord. We want to. What do I want to see? Second, we have to remember that when a person dresses themselves in, in a way that calls out their body, they're doing the same thing that we do designing the user interface, right? They're directing your eyes to what they want you to see. Well, now, isn't it sad that this young man or young lady wants you to see their body and not see who they are? Do they want to talk to you? Do they want to meet you? Do they want to have a relationship with you? Or do they just want you to see, hey, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm beautiful? Do we do that? When we dress ourselves, how, how do we dress? Are we wearing a pair of jeans that we should have gotten rid of last year? You know, ladies have eyes too. When you're out cutting the grass, you cut the grass with no shirt on. I think that's a law in my county. So many people mow the grass that way. I just get grass all over me. I hate it. <laughs> but, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Do you want people to see how nice you look cutting the grass? Even with a cape dress, you know, the dress itself is modest, but we can make it tighter or looser or fuller or thinner. What do we want people to see? We want them to see God in us. That's what we want them to see. You know, young men, when you look at a young lady and the first thing you see is her dress, if you see a cape dress and a covering, that should be what's attractive. Now I want to see her face, right? She's one of my people. This is someone I want to get to know. So, so turn over to Proverbs 7. We kind of have an example of all this. And we'll start down at verse 10. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and subtle of heart. So she wasn't dressed um, modestly. Okay? And so she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day I have paid my vows. Now, see? She's really a nice girl. She just came from church. Right? She just went and made her offerings. And therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. And I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry and carved works and with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Now, some of these other things aside, isn't it interesting that she perfumed her bed with myrrh? You know, myrrh is a spice that's used to cover the smell of death. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. Now, is what she's offering love? Is that what she's offering with him? Is she asking him to spend his life with her and have a relationship with her and take care of her? For the good man is not at home. He has gone a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. And with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway, as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or a fool to the correction of the stocks. He, he didn't even hesitate. She came up, she kissed him, she said some nice things, he went with her. Till a dart strike through his liver as a bird hasteth to the snare and knoweth not that it is for his life. So her dress, the way she was dressed or not dressed, attracted his attention. And she came and touched him and kissed him and that made it clear what she wanted. And he saw exactly what she wanted him to see. 
He saw her body. Her body was beautiful. And that was what she offered him. And that was what he wanted to see. That was what he was looking for. Now, if he had looked at her looking for God, if he had seen her and looked at her face and looked in her eyes and listened to what she was saying, he would have seen that God wasn't there. He would have seen that what she was offering him wasn't pleasure, but sin. He would have heard her lies instead of ignoring them, and he would have saved his life. So what do we want to see? And you know, the world tells us today, it's your fault for looking, right? You know, people are told they can wear whatever they want, and you're just supposed to not look. Well, that's a lie and a truth all rolled in together, isn't it? Because they want you to look, or they wouldn't address that way, right? That's the user interface. It was deliberately designed to make you look. And yet it is your fault for looking. You're your own agent. You have God within you. You know what you should and should not see and where you should and should not be. So the young man, he sinned. But his eye was drawn to her on purpose. She was dressed the way she was on purpose. Now today, again, people are told it doesn't matter how you dress. It's everybody else's problem. That doesn't show much of that um, mercy that we talked about in the children's message, does it? You know, if we love our fellow man, would we tempt them to their death? So it's important how we dress. And in fact, today, you know, people, they dress that way carelessly because it's just, you know, you kind of have to, you have to be sympathetic for them. You have to be humble. They're not told any better. The world tells them it's okay to dress this way. But whether it's on purpose or carelessly, tempting other people is a sin. Right? Jesus says in Matthew 18, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. So what do we want to see? Do we want to see sin? Or do we want to see God? Do we want, are we looking for a person we want to spend the rest of our life with? And go with them to meet the Lord? Or are we just looking for sin? Do we want to see God? Matthew 6.22, Jesus says, The light of the body is the eye. And if therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. We can not look. But it's not to ignore people. We want to look at their faces. We want to see where they are. We want to offer them Jesus and the Lord. Shall we have a song?